Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. I'm Patricia Karpis, your host, along with my co-host every other week, Muse co-founder, Ariel Garten. We just launched a new Muse called Muse S, which features a comfortable, soft fabric headband. It gives you real-time feedback on your brain, heart, breath, and body during meditation, and also includes new features designed to help lull you to sleep. Check it out at choosemuse.com and use Untangle15 for your discount code. And if you've ever wanted to learn to meditate in a beautiful setting, check out the Do Nothing Leadership Retreat at donothingbook.com. It's five days in the Colorado mountains starting April 19th and is focused on learning to meditate so that you can be a better leader at work and at home. It's a great place to chill and learn. Former Untangled guest Rob Dubay is the founder and the reviews have been great. I'll be there this year leading the kickoff night, so I'd love to see you there. Now, on to the show. Today's guest is Loretta Bruning, PhD and author of the book, Habits of a Healthy Brain. Retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. She founded the Inner Mammal Institute, where she provides resources that help people rewire what she calls their mammalian neurochemistry. Loretta has done a very deep dive into research on how the motivational chemicals work in animals and makes several connections that relate to us as human beings. She shares how we can retrain our brains to turn on the chemicals that make us happier and increase our overall feelings of satisfaction. It's pretty interesting stuff. Now, here's Loretta. Loretta, welcome. It's great to have you on Untangle today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you wrote this great book, and it's a little bit of a different angle. You talk a lot about how we can rewire our brains and about the chemicals or the hormones, in fact, that influence our happiness. Can you start by giving us a framework for how you came to this discovery and what these hormones are? I was a management professor for 25 years, and I was frustrated with the low motivation that I saw around me, and that got me into studying human motivation for myself, and I was thrilled when I stumbled on research about how the motivational chemicals work in animals, because it was so easy to see how this is really what's going on with us. So I'm talking about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. They make us feel good in ways that our verbal brain may idealize. But in animals, it's so easy to see that these chemicals motivate survival behavior by making them feel good. So animals. So you studied animals because you identified that there was some similarity between our brain and the brains of chimpanzees or is it all animals have uh, similarity? Oh, that's what amazed me so much because wow. I read something about chimpanzees and then I read about another species and it was the same behavior pattern and another species. So basically I went down the ladder for smaller and smaller cortex and I mean even gazelles. So mm. it's the same core survival behaviors that stimulate both our happy and unhappy chemicals. The only difference with the size of the cortex is how much information you involve in second-guessing your first impulse about 
which step, which action will be good for you or not good for you. So animals share the same serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin yes, triggers, not if only, you will. Okay. Yeah. Well, not only that, they share the same brain structures that control it, which is many people have heard of the limbic system. It's like when you see a diagram of the brain and there's those little dots at the core, things people have heard of like amygdala, hippocampus. So these all look like such small dots compared to the giant cortex that we see in images. But these are the things that control the chemicals that make us feel good. And they're the same in animals. There's, of course, size adjusted, the, the body size of the animal. And it's when you say the brain, so it's the size of the cortex and mostly the prefrontal cortex that's relevant. So the bigger the prefrontal cortex, the bigger an individual's power to put the brakes onto their first impulse and to generate an alternative impulse and to store information from past experience to create these alternative impulses. Let's go through each of the hormones that you discuss in terms of how they impact us, because you're saying we have some reactions or triggers based on these hormones, but if we are activating our prefrontal cortex and we learn how to put the brakes or to intercept that impulse, we have this ability to make big changes in our lives and to create a happier framework. Yeah. Oh, so you want me to go through each of the chemicals? Yeah. Okay. Mind? Yeah. Um, Let's go so, through them and see what, what their purpose is. So the purpose of dopamine is to make you feel good when you take steps toward a reward. And reward is defined in a very simple way in the world before refrigerators and supermarkets. You had to constantly find food and soon it was digested and then you had to find more. So it's that seek and find impulse that stimulates our dopamine and our ancestors relied heavily on this impulse and they got joy when they found, let's say, protein because if you have a very limited diet and then you stumble on some protein, your body needs it, craves it, and your brain rewards you with dopamine. So in the modern world, when it's so easy to fill your belly, then we still crave that good feeling of dopamine because that's your brain's signal that, yay, I just met a need. Okay, so I'll move on to oxytocin is the feeling that I'm safe because I'm with my herd. So again, animals don't intellectualize this and romanticize it and idealize it. So they stick with the herd when there's a predator because that feels safe. They can let their guard down and letting your guard down feels good. And with a bigger brain like a monkey, monkeys can be more complex rather than just with the herd, not with the herd, is I, which individual am I going to groom and hope that they groom me back so they form individual reciprocal bonds rather than just group bonds. And oxytocin makes it feel good. And in the human world, well, we feel good when we're with the herd, but they also get on our nerves. And that's why I was so amazed to see how animals get on each other's nerves. So we have this difficult choice between feeling threatened when we're not with the herd because our oxytocin falls and we have that good feeling of oxytocin when we go back to the herd. But on the other hand, who wants to just follow the herd all the time? Plus, sometimes you groom people and they don't groom you back. 
So every one of these is difficult to get in practical life, which is why, again, I do not romanticize this idea that we should be like floating on happy chemicals all the time. Now, the complicated one is serotonin, because what I learned in research, which again is I was just reading the century of other people's research, and it was so clear that mammals are very competitive and serotonin rewards you with a good feeling when you come out a little bit ahead. And it's so easy to see in daily life that people feel good when they come out a little bit ahead and that that chemical is soon metabolized. So we want more. We want to come out ahead again. And this is what people seek to feel good. And the more your belly is full and the more you're safe from predators, the more you obsess over Mm. this feeling of wanting to come out a little bit ahead. So endorphin is chemically the same as opioid, but it's produced by your body only when you're having real physical pain. So in the animal world, maybe you have a lion hanging in your flesh, but you can still run to save your life because endorphin masks pain with a good feeling, which humans perceive as euphoric, and that masks pain for about 15 minutes so you could take action to save your life but it is not designed to be on all the time. And especially we are not designed to inflict pain on ourselves to get it. And that's why my books are about how to get the others, but I'm not really recommending chasing endorphin. But I do explain that you get a little bit from laughing. (laughs) So it's good to understand it and to be happy with a little bit of it. So let's talk about how we integrate these ideas into our lives. You know, you talk about how these impact our brains. However, you also in your book, you talk a lot about how our experiences from childhood on create these neural patterns. If we can retrain our brains, we can create new neural pathways. How do we change? How do we you know, you talk about, I think the back of your book actually says like boost your happiness in just 45 days. You know, how do you have, how do you create new habits for a happy brain? And so when you talk about like all the research that you've done, how do you then apply that to these day-to-day shifts that we need to do to shift away from stored experiences that may be harmful? Short answer is like in very small steps that you have to repeat often. Okay. <laughs> so, um We all have billions of neurons at birth, but our neurons are not connected to each other. So it's the connections between neurons that make us feel normal. So for example, when I speak my native language, I know it because I've built connections between neurons and electricity flows so easily when there's a connection that the words just come to me. But when I try to learn a foreign language, I'm trying to connect neurons, trying to activate a neural pathway that's not already connected. And to build those connections in adulthood takes a lot of repetition because adults have less of a chemical called myelin, which is basically like the paving on our neural pathways. So we seek rewards in ways that worked when we were young because those pathways are already paved by myelin. And we use those old expectations about like which actions are going to get me dopamine, which actions are going to get me serotonin, 
whatever got me that in my past, connected neurons and my electricity just flows there. So that's why like you may seek dopamine one way and your friend may seek it another way based on your individual past experience. But each of you thinks that's the way. And then when Mm. you try something different, it feels weird and it feels like it's not going to work because it's so hard to send electricity down neurons that are not already connected. So when you choose a new behavior and repeat it, you build those connections. And that's hard because who wants to repeat a behavior that doesn't already feel good? So when you understand that that's what's going on, it makes it easier to say, okay, I've decided that this is what I'm going to do. And if I keep repeating it, then it will start feeling natural because my electricity will flow. But your electricity will never flow as well as the old pathway because that was myelinated in youth. So the bottom line is to have confidence in your new pathways, even though they're sort of like dirt trails rather than big hikes. You talk about these early circuits stay with you. Our reality, our experiences, our expectations, what we get happy about and what we're disappointed, they're also built into our early circuits. So step by step, we really have to make these conscious choices in order to change that. These are habit-changing suggestions that you're making, but we really do have to make a choice almost in every moment, you have to decide, is this how you want to be? And then you have to make a conscious choice to change that habit. Yes. So what do you suggest? What are some steps? Sure. Well, I'm not going to use an example with diet and exercise because we've heard so much about those. So let's use a more common daily experience of I speak my mind and then... I have a terrible internal reaction that what I said is going to somehow go wrong, that I didn't get the reaction that I wanted, whether it's professional or personal, that, oh my God, something's going to go wrong because of that. Now, again, my social fears may be different from your social fears. And if I look at my fears, I'm like, whoa, that just happens to match exactly what happened to me when I was young. And your social hangover, let's call it, like exactly matches what happens to them. We say, oh my gosh, it's just a circuit. And I can create a new circuit with positive expectations. So the one I use, this is very simplistic, but instead of worrying about people saying bad things to you behind your back, why don't you make up that people are saying good things about you behind your back? So your first reaction may be, well, that's false and fake. But in fact, your illusions about bad things are just as false and fake because your brain prioritizes bad experiences. You mentioned before about Mm. your disappointments. So our unhappy chemicals like cortisol are even more powerful than our happy chemicals because in the state of nature, a threat can kill you faster than missing out on a reward. So we've all built huge threat pathways and to readjust our electricity, to reroute ourselves from a negative expectation to a positive expectation, it's just like building a new exit ramp on an old highway to steer yourself into a positive expectation that you can't have until you build that highway. Mm. So is this similar to 
some of the concepts in positive psychology or cognitive behavioral therapy. I think you said putting your brakes on your first impulse and making a new choice seems so important to this process. Yeah. So in a way, I would say it's in the space between positive psychology and cognitive behavioral. So I personally really focus on self-acceptance. Everybody talks about change, but I think a huge piece of it is self-acceptance. So first, to accept that I am the way I am because my brain was wired from early experience, but also because our happy chemicals reward us for survival behaviors rather than the romantic notions we have about what should make us happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to change everything. I'm going to have this core but everybody else is struggling with their core. So I don't have to be constantly in this disease model where I'm finding fault with myself. And I can make individual improvements with effort by focusing on one small improvement and another and another every 45 days. So have you integrated this into your own life? Was this a life-changing discovery for you when you started uncovering all of the research? Yes and no. Partly I was already doing this and wondering, why are other people so negative? Oh, (laughs) And that's one of the things that motivated me to understand because animals are very fearful and defensive and they need to be. So I had made a habit of, I'm each thing that feels like horrible crisis in my life to say, well, what's the good side of this? How can I make something good come out of it? And and I made that a habit and I relieved a lot of stress. Well, I think the way you talk about the brain prioritizing bad experiences, those deep early circuits, to me, that is really helpful because that first step of self-acceptance, when you know that your brain is prioritizing negative, and that you have these early circuits that are can be difficult and that you have a choice seems really interesting. And I, I want to just ask you something about dogs for a second. Let's say a puppy has a really negative experience. Let's say they get bitten by another dog when they're four months old and that creates a trauma in their brain. Is there a way with animals, but dogs in particular, to counter that negative experience since they don't have the same prefrontal cortex to be able to make that choice. Is there a certain type of training that you do with, okay. Can you share that? Yeah. You know, it's called clicker training. Oh, right. You can look for, have you heard of it? Yes, I have. Yes. But I'd love to hear your take on that. I love watching these clicker training videos on YouTube and it can be applied to other animals and people, but the focus is largely on dogs. So the idea is that the brain learns from rewards. And once again, my work is always focused on the state of nature, and I'm just acknowledging that domesticated animals are, you know, not exactly the same thing. But Mm -hmm. the brain learns from rewards, and so when you structure the environment to reward, let's call it a trusting behavior, like I fear X but I take a step toward it anyway, and then I get a big reward, which is like something that your dog would never get fed otherwise, but a tiny piece of it. And the dog only has to take a tiny step toward that reward to get a tiny piece of sausage, and then repeat, 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 and that builds a new pathway. 
that's really interesting because in a way it's the same thing that you're talking about with human beings, except that we need to do that with ourselves. We exactly. can't rely on other people to do that for exactly. us. Exactly. Um, will you talk about some of the obstacles that people have when they start to shift some of these behaviors? Sure. So I wrote two more books on that. So the next one is okay. The Science of Positivity. And the next one is called Tame Your Anxiety. So I'll just, in the interest of time, I'll just give very short answers. Social comparison is a core impulse of the mammal brain. So we are always making trade-offs between what step can I take to seek rewards? What step can I take to stay with the group? So often, if I want to step toward this new reward, then I'm stepping away from what my group is already doing or my perception, my early circuits about what you need to do to stay bonded with your group. It's very much building that confidence in your own steps and feeling safe when you're not just repeating the steps that kept you bonded with your group in the past. The other one is trade-offs, this idea that you... yes. Yes. I love that. You can't just expect that all your happy chemicals are going to flow all the time while you're sitting on the couch and believe that something is wrong with you if they're not and expect the doctor to fix it. Now, I can understand how people get this expectation, but mm-hmm. it's just not effectively true. And so once you accept that you only get these chemicals when you take an action step towards survival but you have the power to like redefine those action steps, then you could be more realistic. And that's what the science of positivity is about, building realistic expectations and pairing your negativity so that you can take positive steps. And could you use some of these tools that you talk about with people who are like, have anxiety or depression? Or would you say this is really more impactful for really changing you know, general habits? Oh, I very much think it's for everyone, regardless of a person's mental health challenges. I do not use the disease words myself, but uh, if a person chooses to identify with words like depression or anxiety, the way I focus on it in my anxiety book is what makes an animal feel safe? What's going to make my animal brain feel safe? And a gazelle is always living in a world full of predators. It can't say, I'm not going to be happy until the world is perfectly safe, because that will never come. But a gazelle has confidence in its own ability to escape the predator. And that's what we need. Now, your human brain Mm -hmm. can say, yeah, but the gazelle is going to fail to escape the predator sometime. And that's what our human brain is saying. Yeah, but you're going to die someday. Someday there's going to be something that's going to get you. And that's going to leave you miserable. So the idea is to build confidence in your own steps because that stimulates your happy chemicals. That is so interesting. Are there any big concepts that you, or any concepts that we have not talked about that you would like to share? Yeah. I know you have lots of exercises. I'd love to, yeah. There's yeah. more. Um, I don't think I got into the serotonin thing, and this is huge. Oh, let's do that. So, okay, um, let's do that. Animals are very... Co- oh, oh, I think I did a little. So animals yeah. are very competitive, and when you get a little bit of social advantage, you get the good feeling of serotonin. And I said, when your life is otherwise fine, 
This is what you focus on. And so when someone else gets the one-up position, that feels like a survival threat to your inner mammal because in the animal world, your genes are less likely to survive and your brain alarms you with cortisol that says, uh-oh, someone else is getting ahead of you. Their genes are going to survive and not yours. Now, of course, no one thinks this way consciously and animals right. don't consciously care about their genes, but natural selection built this brain. And so animals constantly compare themselves to others and look for an opportunity to be in the one up position and to avoid the one down position. And this is what our brains are constantly doing, comparing ourselves to others and driving us crazy over minutiae that we then decide, oh my God, my survival is threatened because somebody else has a better this or that. And once we see how animals do this, it helps us just relax more about it. Do you think that's possible given the world we live in today where so many college students are extremely competitive, even high school students, and then you go into the workplace and if you work with other people, you're going to compete for the next job. And so how do we soften this and still keep our edge? Well, I don't really believe in this blame the world point of view, although I certainly sympathize with why people would, because that's what's being taught. But right. for most of human history, you know, you didn't have the chance to get an education. You were stuck wherever you were born. Mm -hmm. And if you got a bad grade on a test, you didn't go to college, you didn't get second chances. Today, it's like, oh, there's a college for everyone, there's a mate for everyone. So life is really less competitive than it used to be. But it's because our basic needs are met, and we're basically safe, that that next little advantage sucks up all of our attention. And we take all of our life or death machine in our brain and focus it on minutia. And I didn't get that until I started reading all these books about how animals compete over minutia. And I have a reading list on my website, intermammalinstitute.org slash reading list, if okay. you want to read more about animal competitiveness. And then, yeah. of course, my books give um, all of them a brief introduction to that. And then my serotonin page, intermammalinstitute.org slash serotonin, has more links about how you get this nice, relaxing feeling of serotonin when you're like, I'm the man, you know, I got it going on. And then it's metabolized in a few minutes, and then you need that feeling again. Exactly. So it's never ending. You're like yep. a little mouse on a wheel. Yep. Um, it's so, I mean, I think the best news with all of this is that we can change. On our podcast, we talk about mindfulness and different practices and different ideas on the how people look at the brain and positive psychology and so much great stuff. Just knowing that there are these theories and that we can make changes in our lives, that we have this ability is so great to know. Yes. It's such a relief. It's such a relief. Yeah. <laughs> um, are there any other tools that you would recommend for our listeners? Uh, you know, I think some of the biggest ones you've definitely already talked about I mean, it's awareness and self-acceptance and not paying attention necessarily to your first impulse and, you know, shifting some of the negative energy that we place on our thoughts. Are there any other tools that, that you would suggest that we use to shake ourselves out of this? 
autopilot um, behavior. So, so the simple way I explain it is that we have two brains because we need both and we can train them to work together. Uh -huh. And if you can make peace with your inner mammal and find new ways to give it what it wants rather mm -hmm. than condemning it for what it wants, but healthy ways to give it what it wants. Yeah, I love that. Loretta, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been really great and such interesting stuff. Thanks so much for the great questions. Thanks so much to Loretta for being with us today. Her book is available at all major booksellers. And for more information on her, go to innermammalinstitute.org. And if you have suggestions for guests, please send them to untangle at choosemuse.com. And don't forget to check out Muse also at choosemuse.com and use your Untangle 15 discount code. And for hundreds of great meditations, check out Meditation Studio app in the iTunes App Store. We'll see you next week.